Exodus, Exodus, right? Let's start with where it's located, all right? It is located in the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch or the Law, right? Uh, it is a historical book, right? So this is historical. Um, it happened. It's the way it happened. Who is the author of Exodus, they believe? Moses, right? We believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So Moses was... Um, the writer of Exodus, and uh, Moses was also the main, one of the main characters in Exodus, um, as we know, and we'll study a lot about Moses and a lot about um, his life, his calling, his failings, and how God um, still used him. But also, this was an important time in the nation of Israel, forming as a nation. Remember I said in Isaiah that the prophecy or the promise of God was a land, a nation, and a seed. And so um, you're going to see the formulation of a nation, uh, the nation of Israel, Israelites. And so we're going to see that come to pass and see it um, as it forms up here and uh, heading to the promised land. So that was one promise, nation, and then obviously we know through the seed um, comes Christ. So Exodus 1.1, I'll get to some more background information, but let's talk a little bit about these names here. It says, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. How many did I number? How many did I name? Twelve, right? So what's so important about twelve? Who is, who is Jacob? All right, they came. Jacob was the father. Who was Jacob? Jacob had a brother. Anybody know what brother's name Jacob was? Esau, right? Jacob also had his name changed. Jacob was called, what else was Jacob called? Israel, right. So that's where we get the word Israel from. And who was Jacob and Esau's father? Isaac, right? And who was Isaac's father? Abraham, right? So Abraham, Isaac, and then you had Ishmael. That went that way. Now we're still following the line. So Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Esau went that way. Jacob, now we're following the line of Christ, right? We're following the 12 tribes of Israel. And how we got here uh, to this land uh, was Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. He got ended up taken by the providence of God to Egypt. He was very, uh, everything Joseph did, it said that God's hand was upon him. Even what the devil and those and his brothers meant for evil, God meant it for good, right? And he prospered. He had a spirit of excellence on him. He was in Potiphar's house. He was in the, in the prison. He was then in the palace. He became the second person in line to Pharaoh. And uh, he uh, was the one who saved all of Israel because the great famine come, drove them up to Egypt. And without the blessing of, jo of Joseph, they would have literally starved to death. And so Joseph saved his brothers and saved his family in a remarkable way. And then they had the blessing uh, from 
uh, a Pharaoh to be able to dwell outside of the Egypt there. And uh, Joseph was there as well. And so these were his other brothers. This was Jacob's sons. And this was Joseph as well. But then comes verse 6. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Now, when you think about the great work of God, and we think about how important we are in the work of God sometimes, right? A lot of times we think about how uh, God's work uh, just couldn't possibly move on without us sometimes, right? But what do we learn from the Bible? People come and go, but what lasts forever? The will of God, right? God always uses people, but people end up dying. And Joseph was a great leader. Joseph was a great man of God, but he died. And he died, and all his brothers died, and the whole generation died. And so that generation was handing it off to the next generation. And, uh, you know, I got to go to a funeral today and also has been talking to some others about life and death. And it's just amazing how sometimes we don't grasp the ideal of we have a baton and we should be handing that off to the next generation, right? Like, it's not just for us to enjoy, it's for us to pass it off. It's for us to continue the work. And so... Uh, Joseph did a great work, but he passed away, and then all his brothers passed away. That whole generation passed away, but verse 7, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So Joseph and his brothers, uh, through the faithfulness of Joseph and through the faithfulness of that generation, passed off something that thrived, right? Passed off something that continued a great work for God, continued a great nation, continued a great people. And it says they were fruitful. It says they increased. It said they grew mighty, uh, mighty, uh, exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And some believe that they had ballooned up to almost a million people at that time. And so, you know, uh, it's a great challenge for us to think about what are you handing down to the next generation, right? Are you handing to the next generation something that they can use to thrive, something they can use to, be, to multiply, something you are investing in their life so they carry on the mission, right? So they carry on what God has done, and God always uses people, and we must realize and be constantly reminded we're to pass the torch, right? We're to constantly be passing that torch. And, you know, for me, this is a challenge because I have two boys. I call them boys. I don't even realize that now they're men, right? 21 and 19. But I realize how fast that passed. I can remember them being very small and thinking they're never going to grow up. You know what I mean? Like, they're always going to be here I'll always tell them what to do. I will always show them what to do. I'll always fix their truck. I'll always do these things. But then you realize one day they walk out that door and you're like, wait a minute, they're gone, right? Did I put enough in them, right? Did I give them enough tools? Did I pass enough of the baton? It's such a, it's such a challenge for us to remember that as a father, remember that as a mentor, remember that as a church. One of the funerals that I went to was in a church that was an older church. 
You could tell at some time this church was a great church, had a big facility, had a nice place, had a lot of nice things, but you could tell it had been a long time since there was probably a lot of life in that church. And, and you think about as a church, are we just holding on to what we have or are we passing off to the next generation to see it thrive? And that's what, that's what the challenge is. For me, when I read through the Old Testament and I read through these stories, I don't want to be the one that passes something off that's not fruitful, passes something off that dies or doesn't grow. No, I want to pass something off that's worthwhile, right? I want to pass off something that's going to make a difference in people's life. And then also the challenge for us is, you know, what do we pass off? And we see Joseph, as great as he was, he still died. And this also is a great reminder not to put your faith in people, right? Listen, I could be the best pastor this church has ever had, and I think I've got a pretty good case for it, all right? Don't you agree? Yes. Okay, good. But listen, I'm going to die, right? I, I am not perfect. I am not immortal. I have to pass this thing off to the next generation, right? Like, I have to make sure I'm investing to make sure as good as we think men can be and God can use men, yes, but they're not the end of the story. God's work goes beyond that. And we got to remember that. It's not about who we are and our kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. It's about God's work. And Joseph got that. Joseph put his people and his kids and these people in a great position to thrive. And that's what they did. They were thriving. They were fruitful. They were multiplying. They were exceedingly mighty. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look at the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So this new leader comes along. He's like, I don't know what the deal was with Joseph and what he had with the other Pharaoh, but I don't like it. I look out there. They're powerful. They're mighty. There are a lot of people. And he's like, I don't, I don't like it because... Now I don't have an agreement with them, and if someone were to attack us, they could help them, over, help, help them overcome us, or they could even possibly overcome us themselves. And then look at verse 10. What's his solution? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of a war that they join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. I, I don't really know how this happens because I don't really know how people, you know, read the Bible and come away with these conclusions. Uh, but more times than not, when you hear somebody preach or you hear somebody from the Western civilization talk about Christianity, they talk about the blessings of God, right? They talk about how it is wonderful, how it is awesome, how it is great. And there's some great and wonderful things about the will of God and about the blessings of God. But in the will of God, there is always, always, always opposition, troubles, and trials, right? Like, you can't write this out of the Bible. This is, 
This is one of the most prosperous times for the people of God in the midst of this time that they had coming out of the faithfulness of Joseph. And you would think you would read here that, and they lived long lives and prospered, and they went to Disneyland, right? But no, that's not it. Immediately or soon after the prospering and soon after they are, 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 are being blessed, here comes the enemy. He wants to attack them. He wants to deal shrewdly with them. He wants to beat them down. He wants to stamp them out. He wants to, he wants to, uh, you know, he wants to break them up. And you know, in life, and in Christian life especially, in your walk with God, you're going to have to learn how to deal with this. You know, a phrase that changed a lot about what I, what I would teach and think about the Bible that really changed how I viewed some stuff, not just life in general, because, you know, life beats you up as you go. You learn it's not all rainbows and sunshine, you know. You, you have some troubles and trials that come along that sweep you off your feet. But a pastor said one time, he said, I think the American church is prepared for prosperity, but the American church needs to be prepared for, uh, for opposition. That's what he said. And he said, so many of us want to hear and be prosperous, be prosperous and hear about the prosperity, but we're not prepared for the, the, we're not prepared for the war. We're not prepared for the opposition. We're not prepared for the attack of the enemy. And every time you're going to do something for God, you best be ready for some opposition. Now, I know this was kind of tongue-in-cheek today, and I thought it was kind of funny when I was studying this because Miss Carol called me, and Miss Carol, we were talking, and she said, you're never going to believe this, but she said, I feel led to teach the ladies about spiritual warfare. <laughs> and I just had to laugh. You know why I had to laugh? The last time I preached about spiritual warfare, I almost died. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know what kind of stuff you're going to unleash, but you better be prayed up and ready. That's all I got to say. Because let me tell you, when you go stirring up those kind of things, and, you, and listen, I know it needs to be taught, and I know it needs to be preached, but you better be ready. And listen, Anytime you step up and you're going to prosper for the Lord, get ready. Every step in my ministry has been opposed. Every step up. Every single one. A famous African-American preacher that used to preach in Jacksonville, he said, for every new level, there's a whole new devil. <laughs> it's like, that is so true. Every new level, there's a whole new devil. You want to step up and be a spiritual leader in your home? You better be ready. You want to step up and say you're going to take care of your kids and raise them in the nurtured admonition of the Lord? You better be ready. You're going to step up and say that you want to, you know, join a church and get the serving and, and reaching people for Christ and sharing the gospel? You better be ready because it's going to come. The opposition will come. It is, it is almost automatic. And this is not to depress you, this is to prepare you. If you are prepared for it and you're ready for it, you can deal with it in a much better way because you're prepared. And here was these people, they were growing, they were prospering, and they wasn't prepared. They was not prepared. And Pharaoh comes, 
and Pharaoh, call him whatever you want to, when you take all the, you know, take all the titles away, take all the face away, take all the flesh away, it's nothing but the devil. That's who it is. We have one enemy we fight, and that's Satan himself. And we do a lot of wasting time fighting fleshly things when we should be fighting the spiritual thing, right? It is Satan himself. He's the, he's the adversary. He's the great deceiver. He's the opposer of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren. And so what does he do? He sees these people. He sees the favor of God on them. And so he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. He was about to, wipe them off, uh, about to wipe them off their feet or knock them off their feet. Look at verse 11. Here was this plan. Therefore, he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in, they were in dread of the children of Israel, Right? So the more they did it, the more they grew, the more they afflicted them, the more they were like, they're coming out everywhere. So the Egyptians said, turn up the heat. Look at verse 13. Let's make the children of Israel serve with rigor, meaning with, to full extent. We're not punishing them enough. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and stucco. And tile, right? No, it's decent. <laughs> mortar. It was a stucco man joke. But anyways, mortar and brick and tile, Roger, right? And concrete. Yes, concrete too. Yes. <laughs> but he made them in mortar and brick and all, and all manner of the service of the field and their service in which they had made them serve with rigor, right? To, to the fullest extent, laboring, serving, and, and, and pushed to the brink of of disaster then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives that wasn't enough of whom name was uh, Shifra and the name of the other was Pua Poo. <laughs> and he said when you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women see them on the birth stools if it is a son then you shall kill him but if it's a daughter then she shall live now, before we could even see, and before they even knew, and before what even Pharaoh could understand what he was doing, we know where this attack was coming from, right? What was going to come from the nation of Israel? The seed, right? Who was the seed? Jesus Christ, right? So the seed was going to come, and so his, his solution to his problem of them multiplying was to kill the babies, kill the male-born babies. And if you go back through history, you see, this through every, you see this through every part of history. The solution to every evil ruler is to kill the babies. That's what it is. Kill, kill the babies. And, and then specifically, or kill the male babies. And he's telling them, as you do these duties, see the baby, you kill it. How are they killing them? They were throwing them into the river and letting them drown. They would just let them die. Look at verse 16. Oh, 17, I'm sorry. But... The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So they're like, we can't do that. So they begin to save them and went against Pharaoh and his command. Then verse 18, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? 
And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. So they were lying, right? They were saying, hey, before we even get to them, they've already had the baby, and they are already gone. There's nothing we can do for them. Therefore, God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And, it, and so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just the midwives, all his people, Every son who is born, you shall cast it into the river. Every daughter, you shall save alive. So you already see God's provision, right? The command was to kill the babies. The midwives who had nothing took a stand because they feared God. And what did God do for the midwives? He stood up with them. He dealt with the midwives, meaning that he dealt favorably, uh, favorably with them. And listen, you can never, ever go wrong taking a stand for God, right? I used to love what Dr. Lindsay Sr. used to say. He would say, when you stand with God, you're not in the minority, you're in the majority, right? Listen, the midwives was against Pharaoh and all of Egypt, but yet God still used them in a mighty way. They were used, even though they had little strength and a little part of power, God used them and still used them in a mighty way. And it's always great for us to be reminded of that. Whatever we have, if we are faithful to God, he will bless, even in the hardest of times. And so every one of them now is going to be cast into the river. They were to die. Let's take a look at chapter 2. And the man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that it was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done, uh, to know what would be done to him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went, called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Isn't that a great story? Listen, a lot of people liken this as a picture of Christ, the salvation of God. Now, when you read about the Old Testament, you read about Noah and the ark. What did he put what did he put in the, in the floor of the ark or in the, on the walls and the floor of the ark on the inside? You remember what it said? Pitch, right? And he covered it with this pitch and he covered it with this asphalt. And when the storm came, he was floated and he, and he was covered by this ark, right? And the judgment or the judgment of God, he was saved from it. Well, here they were saying this was like a mini ark, that this was a picture of, of God's deliverance of one man that was going to picture the deliverance of a whole nation. 
So he had, a, he had an ark of bulrushes, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put it in his hands, and then laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. Yes, sir. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that is a that's what that's why people believe it's a type of this picture of salvation, or even as we learn later on, as he said the first time the word salvation was used. But this was the picture of the asphalt and the pitch. Now later on, uh, when the judgment of God falls, it's not it's not covered with asphalt and pitch. What's it covered with? The blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's the picture. So the picture of that is for us, for, for us to see this salvation. And I think it's so neat to see this, that not only did God protect Moses because he was going to deliver a nation and a people and a seed, right? And, and through this, not only that, but Moses' mother and his sister had enough faith to trust in him and the providence of God that when she floated him down that river, now think about this, as a mother. Now I could see if it was an ugly baby, right? We have ugly babies. They said this was a beautiful baby, right? Moses was a sight to behold. And she literally put him in this basket and have enough courage and faith to float him down the river. Think about that. I mean, sometimes we think about how uh, people get their faith, and even with Moses, how he walked with God later on. I mean, think about his mother. His mother was willing to put him in this, to send him down this thing, say a prayer, and then his sister comes along and gets Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, I know a Hebrew woman that will nurse that baby for you. You can keep him, and it will be all hush-hush. There will be no problem. And she said, sure, go get her, and I'll even pay her. Think about that. God not only provided her, but he also said, I'm going to provide wages for you to take care of this, ma this, ma this little child. And, and you think about this. How many times in our life have we seen God's provision over and over and over again? Now, when we get later on talking about Moses, don't forget about the story. Moses was helpless. Moses was a baby. But yet, God put people in his life that, would, that had trust and faith in God. And through his promise... God was going to deliver even when Moses did, not even, Moses did not even know God was delivering for him. You know, think about our lives. So many times we get in situations and then we get in troubled, troubled times. Matter of fact, I myself sometimes will get to a point where it's kind of like, man, we live in a wicked world, right? Man, we live in a terrible world. I can't see the hand of God on this, and you can't see the hand of God on this, and who's going to take care of my child, and who's going to take care of my this and that? We, we go down the line. May we never forget the providence of God, right? May we never forget God himself. He sets up these things, and he, he, is, he is in detail, and especially with the story of the mother and the story of Moses. And as he goes through these things, he, she sends him down the river, the providence of God, and then... Look at verse 10, and the child grew. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So he called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, 
And he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked his way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So, if you were looking for a pastor and you had some qualifications, I'm pretty sure not being a murderer would be one of them, right? Now, we've had several discussions about this. As a matter of fact, this is a pretty uh, uh, topic that most people talk about when they go through Exodus. Was this a justified killing or was this a murder without any cause, right? Now, I think you can argue this out any way that you want to, um, but from what Scripture says, right, he had a kinsman who was a Hebrew that was being beating, beaten by the Egyptian. Some believe that Moses thought he was going to beat him to death. So Moses, on the behalf of this person, stood up and took his life to save the life of his brethren. Now, that's some people's view. Other people's view said that Moses had a temper. He was angry. He was upset. He saw it. He acted on it. And he took his life for no reason. Now, I'm not real sure how you feel about it, but as you read through this story, obviously Moses took some shame of this, but Moses did not run away. He was driven away, right? Why was he driven away? He's driven away because Pharaoh heard about it and said he was going to kill him, right? So Moses obviously had to go somewhere or he was going to be killed. And so, as well as he said here, they were fighting and did wrong. So, either way, Moses shouldn't have done this, so to speak. So some people say, however you want to cut it up, but obviously Moses had, has, was later on in his life, we know he was supposed to speak to the rock, and what did he do? He struck the rock twice, right? And we know it ended up costing him again later on down the road. So temper, anger, all those things, uh, you know, all this to say Moses is not perfect, right? Moses is just a man. And Moses, in the heat of passion, did something he shouldn't do. And this is what happened because he was mere man. And yes, we can have a great uh, understanding of who Moses, in, uh, Moses was and what he did. But to worship Moses over Christ or to worship Moses over God as the deliverer of God's people, we know Moses was just a tool, right? He was a tool in God's hand. So Moses not being perfect, all of a sudden he takes a detour. So 40 years, people believe, he was about 40 years old when this happened. So the next 40 years, you're going to see a detour in Moses' life. And during that detour, God is going to get a hold of him again. We already saw on the video how that happens to this burning bush. But for 40 years, basically, he went to live on the backside of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. And how did that happen? He went, he ran, he came to a place once he fell tired and he sat down by a well in Midian. Look at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters that came and drew water 
They filled the troughs uh, uh, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they had come, came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, And where is he? And why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. In other words, it might have been like our culture today. It was like, you found a hardworking man, you left him? <laughs> you go get him, right? I can use him. <laughs> go find that guy. <laughs> like, bring him here to me, right? But also, he wanted to reward him. He said, call him. Let's, let's eat bread with him. Let's give him something. And then, so verse 21, Moses was content, content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. She bore him a son. She'll call his name Gerson. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Isn't that a great passage? And you think about this. Here they were, as Moses had taken the detour, backside of the mountain, content to live where he was, uh, free from the responsibilities of God and from his people. It says he was content. God had given him a wife, given him a son, called him a stranger in a foreign land. But now it happened in the process of time that as this king of Egypt died, literally the children of Israel became more and more in bondage. They began to suffer, and they cried out. They cried out to God. They cried out to God so much, it says, God says, finally, through their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. When it says God remembered his covenant, you think that God had forgotten his covenant? Think that God has a bad memory? Think he had amnesia? No, right? This is not what it means to remember his covenant. Another way you could put this is God honored his covenant. He was honoring this. He, he literally had acknowledged this. He had brought it to the forefront. And as these people were crying and calling out on God because of their bondage, he had honored or he had uh, brought to the forefront this covenant that he had with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob as the Redeemer, right? As the one who was going to give them a promise of the land and a promise of a nation and a promise of a seed and he says because of this covenant God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them I just love that verse I love that verse for several reasons one is because when we cry out to God as his children I think one of the one of the greatest pictures we could have is that God looks upon us God hears our prayers. Listen, when we are in desperate times and we are in times of distress and we are in times that challenge our life to the very existence of life itself, when we cry out to God, He, he looks towards us. He, he hears us. Even as the psalmist says, He inclines His ear to me. This is literally what it means, that 
God hears his people. He hears our cries. He hears us as we come to him with our burdens. And as his people, he looks, he acknowledges, he looks our way because we're in relationship with him. Out for us, yes, we're going to have hard times. Yes, we're going to go through times we're going to cry out to God. Yes, there's going to be times that you feel like no one is listening. But listen to this verse. The promise is that God hears you. God looks towards you. God inclines his ear towards you, even in the midst of your deepest hurting and crying and your sorrow and your deepest pain. God inclines his ear to his children. He did it for the nation of Israel, and God acknowledged them, meaning that God was going to do something about it. And we're going to learn how he does something about that. But what a great promise for us. And yes, we're going to face times in our life where we're going to cry out to God. And yes, we're going to face times where it's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. But man, if we'll cry out to God, he will incline his ear to us. I told this story before, but some of you may remember it. Some of you may not. But uh, Mac Brunson, who took over at pastor at First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, um, he, was a, he was a pastor there for several years. And he told a story of a time in his life where it was one of the lowest points of his faith. And he had some issues going on in his life. He had just left a church. He had started going to another church, uh, which was First Baptist Church of Dallas. And so he was getting a lot of feedback. wasn't a whole lot of positive feedback, right? So he was, he was getting raked over the coals, and he was having a hard time, and he was having a hard time adjusting. And, and he was also, his wife had some medical issues. She was, she was having some trouble. And so then also his newborn son, well, actually, he was growing a little older now. And they noticed that he wasn't keeping up with his growth chart, like he wasn't keeping up on his growth chart. And so they told him that he had some sort of syndrome or something that was, you know, keeping him from growing. And if it didn't correct itself, there was going to be some major developmental things and different things in his life. And he says, in the process of all that, they came back with his wife and said, she's got to have surgery. She has stage four cancer. And he thought, are you serious, right? Like, what in the world is happening, you know? I was pastoring a church in South Carolina. We were happy. Our family was great, and everything was going well. We come here, and it's like the whole world just, I mean, the, whole, the bottom just fell out. Everything just totally fell apart. Now his wife, he's going to go in, and she's going to have the surgery, and then she's going to start this chemotherapy process. And so he said he went in there with her at 6 o'clock in the morning in the hospital, and he checked her in, and course they don't let you go back or anything and they prepped her up for surgery and so he said that he they wheeled her off and he was crying he said he was calling out on God and he said he just thought you know what I'm gonna go to the waiting room and I'm sure some of the deacons will be there right I'm sure some of my friends would be there I'm sure some of my family will be there he said he went to that waiting room and guess what there wasn't a single person in that waiting room and he thought are you serious, right? He's like, this is at the time of my life when I'm broken the most, God, like you couldn't have anyone here for me. There is no one here to listen to me, to pray with me, to walk with me. And he said, it wasn't an audible voice, but God spoke to his heart and he said, if no one is here, then who are you talking to? And he said, immediately, he hit his knees and said, God, you are here with me. I mean, 
He knew he was there for him. He knew he was with him. He knew he heard his cries. He knew he heard his groanings. And he said his heart was flooded with peace like he could never imagine. And he said, no matter what you're going through, how you're going through it, God hears his children and he inclines his ear to them and he acknowledges them. And so uh, I want to close with that. I want to pray and then we'll uh, talk about the story a little bit, some more, and then we'll have our time of prayer. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you, Lord. God, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a good God. You're a God who hears our prayers, Lord. God, maybe even tonight, someone feels like their heart is so heavy. There's things that's happened to them that they just didn't even know if you cared, Lord. Maybe tonight, just as the nation of Israel or just as Dr. Brunson had heard and felt the presence of God in his life, Lord, maybe tonight was the night they're going to feel that, Lord. They're going to know through this story of the Israelites and through the stories of others and so many faithful believers that you have walked with them, Lord, step by step. You've walked them through the valley of the shadow of death. You have you had walked with them through good and through bad. And when we cry to you, Lord, when we call out on your name, you are a God who is there for us, Lord. You incline your ear to us. You acknowledge us, Lord. And God, help us be those people that take a stand. Help us be the people that pass off something to the next generation that can do a great work for God, Lord. May we continually be reminded, Lord, of passing on to the next generation and pouring the things into them that will help them prosper and help the nation, I mean, help the Christian nation, Lord. Not about our kingdom, but the kingdom of God, Lord. And I pray through the study of Exodus, Lord, as we read through Moses' life, Lord, we know he wasn't perfect. We don't know what happened, but we know it was something that set him back 40 years, Lord. Set him back to the backside of a mountain, Lord. And I pray in our lives, Lord, that as we consider and walk with you, Lord, that we will stay in your will, that we will, we will try to be obedient and trust you with your will and your timing, Lord, and not take things into into our own hands, Lord, but trust in your deliverance, Lord. That would be our heart's prayer. And Lord, I pray tonight as we continue to talk about these scriptures and as we come to our prayer time, I pray that you will help us and you will meet with us and that you will comfort our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.